Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday School Podcast with Sean Parker. Today we're going to be discussing the reliability of the Bible. What's the history behind it and can we trust that we have the complete version today? So without further ado, let's get into it. Let's start today with what the Bible actually says about itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-13 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Second Peter 1.20 Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So clearly the scripture is fully inspired by God. As long as we have the right scriptures, we can trust that they are God's word. So what qualifies a writing as scripture? What makes it authentic and God-breathed? There are several questions that scholars and religious leaders of old asked to decide on a scripture's authority. First, does the scripture have prophetic or apostolic authorship? Or was it written by an apostle or a prophet? These people would have been given divine authority to write the Holy Scripture, led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The apostles weren't just limited to the twelve initially chosen by Jesus. Uh, In Galatians 1.19, we see that Jesus' brother James was also considered an apostle. It says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. There are a few books, such as Luke, Mark, and Acts, that don't have apostolic authorship but they were written under an apostle's guidance. For instance, Luke was the traveling companion of Paul. In correlation with the requirement for apostolic authorship, the books had to also be written during that era. All of the accepted New Testament writings were completed in the first century AD. Having been completed during the time of the apostles, it also makes sense that they would have been present to guide the compiling of the texts. So... As the scriptures were being put together by the early churches, the apostles were there to say, yeah, I wrote this. The next thing to look at would be the circulation of the text. Were the early churches copying and recopying the text and then distributing them? Was there immediate and universal acceptance by the early churches? Today's New Testament was almost entirely unquestioned by the early church. The books also couldn't contradict each other. Uh, It wouldn't make sense for one book to say you can do this and another book to say you can't. Clearly, one of them would have to be wrong and and not inspired by God. Um, But many of the writings could be authenticated based on external historical factors, among other things. Um, The writings of Paul, for instance, had very distinct theological and stylistic traits that pointed to his authorship. Um, There are a lot of historical events documented in the Bible that also kind of supported that these really happened or were talking about true things that ended up happening. Uh, Religious leaders have spent centuries studying and meditating on the appropriate compilation of the Bible. 
Uh, so this wasn't done on a whim. A lot of people, a lot smarter than me, sat around and you know debated this, and they've talked about what should go into the Bible and what shouldn't. And during this meditation and study and research and and going through all these other uh, external sources. Many books have been rejected. Uh, the Apocrypha, for one, is not included in Protestant Bibles. The Apocrypha contains about 14 books that are of doubtful authenticity. Now, I will say the Catholic Bible and some others do contain the Apocrypha, but I think it should be noted that for a long time, this was not accepted by those churches. And it wasn't until the Council of Trent in the mid-16th century that they actually compiled that and added the Apocrypha to it. Uh, and, you know, I think it's debatable that the acceptance of those books was really to support some of the doctrine that they were sharing at the time. The Apocrypha itself has been designated as intertestamental or between the New and Old Testament. Early leaders of the church denied them as inspired by God. Jewish leaders also rejected them. Some of these books had unbiblical doctrine, such as praying for the dead for the purpose of obtaining salvation. Uh, this contradicts Hebrews 9.27, which says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The Apocrypha also contains things like Jesus lying, justifies indulgences or the giving of money for the forgiveness of sins. And if you read these books alongside the Bible, you can clearly see that they are different. As some Christian leaders have rejected certain books of the Bible, Jewish leaders have also rejected some, primarily the New Testament. Uh, but the New Testament was actually foretold in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So he's talking about a new covenant, which is basically what Jesus achieved when he came, and it's written about in the New Testament. You know, Jewish leaders and, and, all, and all of the Old Testament talk about a coming Messiah. So they do believe that a Messiah is coming. It's just most of them rejected Jesus, uh, which, of course, as Christians, we don't. Uh, another thing that helps affirm the New Testament is that the books refer to each other. Second Peter 3.16 refers to Paul's letters. It says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's considering uh, Paul's letters as scripture, as, as is noted here. Um, Old Testament writings seem to be more easily confirmed, even though they're older, uh, just because we're following Jewish tradition that has gone on for millennia and has been passed down. And there's not a lot that's changed from those scriptures. In fact, the Christian Bible is exactly the same as the he Hebrew or Jewish Bible, the Old Testament portion of the Christian Bible, I should say. 
Uh, the books are divided a little differently, but they're exactly the same. Um, and the New Testament actually refers to them over 300 times. So all of the books are affirming each other. There's no contradictions between them. You've got a lot of things going on, but other than that going on, you've got historical evidence for it. Now, one of the things that deniers of the authenticity of the Bible will point to is things that predate the Bible. There was a Mesopotamian tablet found that predated Genesis by about 300 years. This tablet refers to the Epic of Gilgamesh. This story is an account of a worldwide flood. Utnapishtim builds a great boat to keep living beings alive during the flood. So it sounds very reminiscent of Noah's Ark, and atheists pounce on this story to say that the Bible is just copying an old myth. However, this is completely illogical. Wouldn't it make sense that if a major worldwide event occurred, one that, you know, say, wiped out almost the entire planet, there would be multiple accounts of it happening as it's passed down through generation? Uh, and it would also kind of affirm that there would be different variations as people that aren't inspired by God, as the Bible is, would get it wrong. And in fact, there are nearly 200 accounts of a worldwide flood in ancient texts that have been found. And to my mind, this just confirms that this was an actual event that happened in history. The Old Testament scriptures meet many of the requirements of the New Testament for authenticity, but we can mostly rely on them based on the traditions of Judaism that confirm them. Uh, the Old Testament has been widely accepted in its current form, uh, but in 1947, there was a discovery made that provided a primary source for confirming the Old Testament, or at least confirming that it's in its original state. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the caves of Qumran, near the Dead Sea. These manuscripts dated from about 250 BC to AD 135 and contained almost the entire Old Testament. So this is now the oldest documents found, and they confirm that the Old Testament that we have today is what we had back then. And the closer you get to the original texts when reviewing historical documents, the stronger the case for their authenticity, or the stronger the case that they match the original text. The New Testament also has texts that are very close to the originals. When it comes to copies of the original New Testament manuscripts, we suffer from an embarrassment of riches. The New Testament was copied between 20 and 25,000 times into various languages. By comparison, the average ancient Greek or Latin writings have about 20 copies. Having that many copies does have a downside, though. Um, it can generate a lot of errors in the manuscripts. This could be concerning for most Christians, and it's usually a point that non-believers will, will point to to show that it's not authentic. But when you actually review the errors, you can see that they're not very significant. Uh, these errors are known as textual variants and can be broken down into four categories. The first and most common group are spelling and nonsensical errors, mistakes that are attributed to carelessness or fatigue of the scribe copying the text. These are humans that are copying the text. Now, the original text would have been inspired by God, and I'm sure every word was 100% accurate. But humans are copying these texts, so you get little things that vary. But when you have 25,000 texts, you can get a really good idea of what the appropriate thing is supposed to be, and especially when it's a silly mistake, you know, 
they call somebody a horse instead of a person, and you can clearly see that they wrote the wrong word down. Uh, the second largest group of textual variants includes minor changes, such as using synonyms. These are things that uh, I don't know if the scribe got stylistic or, or what happened, but it doesn't affect the translation because it's the same meaning to the word. Uh, the third largest category involves meaningful changes that are not viable. Uh, viability refers to the plausibility that either text could be the original. You know, you can't tell which one's right. Uh, for example, a medieval manuscript uses the term the gospel of Christ instead of the gospel of God, which is used by most of the other texts. The fact that this copy comes so much later than the others, it's not viable that this copy is the original text. So we know that the correct way it should be written is gospel of God and not gospel of Christ. So it's a meaningful change to substitute Christ for God there, but it's not viable because we know that the original is gospel of God. Now, the smallest category by far involves changes that are both meaningful and viable. Uh, and these involve less than 1% of the textual variants. For example, in Romans 5.1, some manuscripts say, we have peace, while others say, let us have peace. So Paul's either stating a fact about a believer's status with God, or that Christians should enjoy the peace that God gives them. Either option is sound theologically and has no contradiction with other scriptures. So ultimately, any passage that can't be affirmed, we don't really have to worry there isn't a single essential truth or doctrine that changes based on any of these variants. And if you're a believer, the Bible also tells us that we have the ability to discern what is true. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Proverbs 2, 1-5 through 5 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So some things must be taken on faith, but if you have faith, you also have discernment. So we can truly know that the Word of God is complete and perfect. Thank you for joining me today. I hope this has been informational and helpful in knowing you can trust God's Word. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe to the Sunday School Podcast.